0: From UCL Pals with Sophie Scott, and today I'm going to be talking to my colleague Elizabeth Liz Wanacott. Hi, hi. hi. Um, Liz. All we're going to do here is talk to you a bit about sort of how you got into what you study and sort of your journey through science and what interests you and sort of how you organise your life around work and your work around your life. Sure. So, um, first of all, can you tell a bit? Well, Where did it all start for you? Where did it all start for me? Well, when I was very
1: young, um, once I got over wanting to be a fairy princess, uh, I wanted to be an actress. Um, I loved performing, I loved doing that kind of stuff. And then later, it became more about public speaking, and I was going to be a barrister, I think, at one point. And, I don't know, I watched a lot of Rumpole and L.A. Law and things like that. Um, And I was always quite divided in terms of I liked maths and science, but um, I also loved reading and literature and, and things like that. So I was uh, sort of, was never clear I was going to be a scientist per se. And then what really got me in, what really started me on the path of thinking about language science, I guess, was, um, well, two things, actually. One, studying Latin. So I, um, I studied Latin all through school, right up to scholarship level. Um, and I had a completely insane teacher, incredibly old-fashioned teacher, very inspiring, Um, but we, he taught Latin, uh, I don't know, as he'd learned it, you know, 80 years before, so we chanted, um, I could still do you half the noun and verb declensions in Latin, right, so we learned all these noun and verb declensions, and I just loved this, I mean, a lot of people hate this stuff, right, but I loved it, I loved, um, I loved mad things like building sentences in Latin, translating into Latin, um and it made me think a lot about language and how it worked and in particular i long before i learned knew that people thought about this for a living i was thinking this is so bizarre and I'm, I'm memorizing all this stuff i'm learning all this stuff but there must have been some kids growing up who just implicitly picked up on all these patterns and were using it in their own language um and i just found that really really fascinating idea mm. um and then um but i didn't know that people studied it um I found that out later and I guess the other the other thing that um I sometimes reflect on now kind of somewhat ironically is that actually how bad I was at spelling was something that always kind of frustrated me like hell and got me in trouble all the time but also kind of fascinated me like why why do I find this so hard because I read voraciously but I couldn't mm. spell um and yeah it was just so I and actually I just thinking about it now one of my sort of earliest memories of sort of thinking about language was doing some kind of test where I had to put in you know was it uh, two as in also or two as in I'm going to the park and I just I couldn't do this I couldn't work it out and then I sort of had this realization that you could actually can pronounce them differently so so to the park can be reduced to t- whereas you can't with two and I as soon, and I thought oh gosh my, I knew this my brain knew this but I didn't I didn't know this consciously so I yeah I found that really fascinating and then what made me actually go and study linguistics um, was reading Steven Pinker's book in 94 I think The Language Instinct Um, and funnily enough now I don't really agree with pretty much anything that's in that book but it completely changed my life if I hadn't read that book I was going to go and do classics at Cambridge and I read that book and I thought gosh people study this for a living the thing I've always found interesting and then I went to Edinburgh and I did linguistics and AI as my degree
0: oh interesting yeah so i mean just very very quickly to pick up on that i think there'll probably be some whole other podcast <laughs> to do on the random thing that kind of made you realize oh you could do this yeah even if you don't you know you kind of go back to it now and think it's odd that that inspired me so much yeah be yeah, yeah because all you can see later on is how you know what there is to disagree with but when it's new to you and you just going i yes. think that's
1: what's so important i mean what for me that book was was this is something you can study as a science mm. and that wasn't a new idea but it was certainly a new idea to me and by writing that book he made that extremely accessible mm. um and so i you know i owe him one for that i think yeah definitely
0: <laughs> and so what was it like in edinburgh doing linguistics and ai because that sounds quite um i'm struggling to say Avoid saying the word dry, but it was it is it was it? Oh clear, I, well clear? I loved it. Yeah.
1: I mean I'm I'm a nerd, right? So I didn't I didn't mind it being dry. Um I loved my my undergraduate years were definitely for me like a really high point of my life. I um I'm I was really glad I did the AI. Some of it mm. um some of it was dry, um, but it, it you know, it gave me an insight into how difficult um the implementation of language um in technology was Mm. um for sure also I learned to program which is the thing I do probably most with most of my time now Mm. um I loved linguistics though I mean what I really really enjoyed actually thinking back was the almost like the first so it was a four-year degree but the first two years where linguistics it was really about learning to describe language I think um so learning about phonetics phonology syntax morphology but this different way of talking about languages, and um, I loved all of that. Um, I, later in the degree, I started sort of theoretically to wonder about some of what we were learning. So we were taught in a very generative tradition coming from Chomsky, at least by some of our lecturers, and I began to question some of the assumptions that underpinned that, um, and the way that we were kind of analysing language, kind of looking for more and more general generalizations that kind of you couldn't see on the surface but that were underlying and I was questioning some of those assumptions. But I was incredibly lucky because I was somewhere where you were encouraged to question assumptions. Yeah. Um and yeah, that was that was massively important. Um yeah, I remember one assignment in phonology set by Bob Ladd, who was one of my mentors and, and you know, all time sort of heroes in terms of a teacher. Um we had to analyse some data using all these techniques we'd learned. And then, we, you know, as deeply as we could, kind of go as mad as you can, find all these similarities, and then we had to write an essay kind of critiquing the hell out of our own analysis. Um, and I, you know, I loved that. That was probably yeah. the favourite thing I did in my degree.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but, yeah, I think that that was really encouraging us to think not to accept just what we were told, and that, for me, was really important in, in sort of where I ended up going. Yeah.
0: So what were you feeling as you were getting towards the end of your degree? What were your sort of thoughts about what you wanted to do next?
1: I can't remember exactly when it was, but at some point in my degree it became really clear to me I was going to do this pretty much for the rest of my life. Um, when I went in, I was still thinking about maybe law, I about journalism at one point, something involved writing, acting still... But somewhere in there, it became clear to me, this is what I'm going to do. I had a sort of shift in exactly what I'm going to study, so I think at one point I thought, oh, it's definitely going to be linguistics. Um, Then I started taking some more psycholinguistics courses. Actually, in AI, I started learning about connectionism. So I started thinking and realising there was this sort of more statistical approach to thinking about the way we learned language, the way we process language, um, thinking about... Um, Realising that some of the, probab- the the way that we generalise was so probabilistic, and how it was sort of tied to some probabilistic patterns in our language, and around that time I was at university. Jenny Saffron's Jenny Saffron's paper came out um, in Science, which seemed to show that infants could track some of these statistical relationships between adjacent syllables, which might underpin something big in terms of the way we learn language.
0: So, just to pick up on that, so. Um for people not familiar with this mm. particular aspect of the debate, it was a huge deal. That paper wasn't it? Because the classic kind of, well, generative approach would be that these, some level, it would not you couldn't you couldn't be learning this because. There's yeah, I think I mean a,
1: there was this sort of idea that, um, you know, language, the, the 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 complexity of language that we have in our heads is is the system we use is just too complex to be learned. Mm-hmm from the input and i think around you know really beginning with sort of Ronald, Hart mcclennan in the 80s people were starting to say actually some quite simple low-level principles um, can get you quite far and can get you something that looks a lot like um learning a rule but mm. in a probabilistic way mm. and i think the saffron work was important in showing that humans can do this it's not just something models can do and really small babies can do this so that was really important um, and meanwhile also I was also reading some of the, the literature in adult processing which was making it very clear that the way you parse language your expectation as you, you, you're reading something you have to say oh do I think I'm hearing this kind of structure or this kind of structure very much influenced by your your exposure and how frequently you've heard those words occurring in those structures is, and so all of that in my mind at that time was kind of c- coming together and making me feel very excited about a different way of thinking about language
0: so you're starting to see you've got the linguistics and the AI and you're starting to do the kind of cognitive stuff kind of Yeah, stuff. I started
1: to think of myself as um a cognitive scientist perhaps, yeah. um, and then i I w- was lucky I did my third year project um at that time at Edinburgh, so Simon Kirby. Um, and Jim Hereford at Edinburgh were beginning to do this well, um, quite far, actually, in terms of doing it this computational work where they were thinking about language evolution. So, the sort of traditional Chomskyan story would be we've got this language faculty that's biological and has, ev- has evolved and is somehow coded in our genome. Um, and what the evolution group at Edinburgh was starting to say and are still saying uh, uh, was that you can also think about languages evolving and adapting to humans so as as we learn languages across generations they change we know that and you can see language change um and that that those changes are changing that so something that's more learnable is more like to survive in a language something that's easier to process is more like to survive so those are kind of evolutionary pressures on language in a different way mm-hmm. so you know, I then had those those influences, um, and I think, yeah, at that point, I was probably a cognitive scientist yeah. rather than a linguist.
0: And you're a cognitive scientist who wanted to do a PhD, I guess. Yeah, no,
1: yeah. I I knew, um, I knew I wanted to be an academic, and I knew, at that point doing this somehow, um, and yes, I knew that that meant doing a PhD and
0: um, so whatever how, would happen <laughs> after that. So how did you go about
1: finding a PhD? Um. How did I go about find So um, I talked to my lecturers, to Bob Ladd, who I mentioned before. He v- told me I should definitely go to the States. Um, he said PhDs were, were better in the States. That was his view, I think, at that time. Um, and that for what I was interested in. And mm. so um, I did. Um, I went and uh, investigated a few different places, but I ended up going to Rochester and working with Alyssa Newport, who was one of the key authors on the um, statistical learning infant paper that I talked mm-hmm. about. Um, and actually also eventually in my PhD ended up working with Mike Tannenhaus as well, who was the sentence processing person. So I actually in the end was able to bring together those, those yeah. things that interested me. Um, yeah. So I think for me, it was clear I wanted to do that. Um, one thing that I did that I think surprised people was I, I did take a break between PhD so in the states, it's kind of a master's tied into the PhD. It's like a PhD yeah. program. It's five years, and at the end of my undergraduate or in my final year, I I didn't want to just jump straight into a PhD. Right. Um, I only took a year, but I knew I needed a, I needed some time. Mm. Um, I didn't want to be applying all through my final year yeah. for things and going for interviews and doing the tests you have to do to to do a PhD in the states. So, um, so I spent a year um teaching English uh, first in London and then I lived in Paris for six months and actually I ended up quitting my teaching English job and just w- working selling hotel rooms for four months or something and yeah that was that was, was the only time in my life since I was uh I was 18 when I entered university where I've not been doing this yeah so I, I'm really glad I did it at yeah. least for a little bit of time yeah. just quickly what was it like living in Paris Were
0: you, was your French already good
1: or? oh I did French A level yeah so yeah that was the other thing um yeah, I I think that the other thing for me was I've always felt very embarrassed about how monolingual I am. Like, I mean, and I you know, I mean, I actually have just this year I started being one of the the tutors on a multilingualism course, and I almost feel like I should sort of put my it's like an AA meeting or something. You know, I have something to declare at the beginning of this because every student in the room is bi or trilingual. You know, it's uh, um, but you know, I can at least say in those six months I was there, I was speaking French and um yeah you know that was <laughs> that was something um, yeah that no, was great
0: I'm really glad I did it yeah that's fantastic and then you're doing that. and when you're applying to the US
1: yes I was and so I did um, I did a little trip where I went and I went to Baltimore to visit John Hopkins I went to UCSD where else I go oh, to Penn um, and my then boyfriend now husband uh, came with me on this little tour so we had quite a good time yeah uh, visiting all these places But well, it wasn't the weather. Um, Where is Rochester? Rochester? is upstate New York, and it's okay, yep. a very, very cold and snowy in the winter right. and humid and not that nice in the summer. Um, I, w- I went for the people, so I went because I liked Lissa's work, really, mm. and I also liked that there was um, both the sort of statistical learning community and the focus on learning and the language processing stuff mm. going on with Mike. Um Yeah, I think that's why it's hard to... Looking back, I I don't quite know how I ended up on that decision, but I think that's it.
0: And it worked for
1: you? you Yeah, it worked. I think um, I definitely, during my PhD, had times of doubt about... um, Not necessarily about going there in particular, but just about the process and the difficulty of doing research and um, Mm. the there's a shift so when you're an undergraduate and you're learning and you're fascinated and and then you go and you do you start doing experiments and you realize a lot of them don't work and um and that certainly I think things have changed a bit now but certainly at that time there was very much a you have to get your positive finding before you you know you can graduate even or before you can be a scientist and move on so I, I you know I went through some periods of doubt um in that time um But I stuck with it and, you know, I'm I'm certainly glad I did at this point Mm. (laughs) because it's, um, in the end I found things that did work and I was interested in and and could work on. Excellent.
0: And how did you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but how did you manage the sort of two body problem? Yeah, no, it's
1: a good problem. So I was, uh, good problem, good question. It's not a good problem, it's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. Um. I was very lucky that my husband came with me. So um and well we would we were very lucky because um Mike Tannenhouse needed a programmer at that time and my husband was a computer programmer and so um he actually came and worked in the department where I was. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, I was incredibly lucky in that he made that I guess that and it was a sacrifice to some extent. I think he he yeah. had very good career prospects in what he was doing in London. Um but you know that that really you know he did that for me and and that that's really that's Mm. that's that's why we were able to survive and and I've been able to do this um and then we did a lot of life things while I was there so um he took a while for his visas to come through but he came um when I think I was in my second year and then sometime in my third year we came back to London and got married and then I had my first baby in America, so my son's an American citizen.
0: Wow!
1: So um, our son was born um, at the end of my fourth year. So all through my fifth year, I was breastfeeding um, and writing my dissertation in pretty equal measures, to be honest.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, yeah. Yes. So the um, officially. It, I mean, it's a bit bonkers when you think about it, but officially I didn't actually have any maternity leave, or at least no one ever mentioned the word to me. No. Um, but for me at that this time, and I'm not advocating this at all, but for me at, the, at that time it, it worked quite well because my husband was working, so we had the money to, to, to have help. Um, I was just writing at that point, and so I mm. sort of <laughs> was able to kind of have someone there who I could give the baby to uh, while I was writing, but be there and breastfeed and do the things I wanted to to be able to do with the baby, my baby as well. Yeah. So for me at that time, it it was fine.
0: I think one of the... um, I don't know if this was your experience as as well, but one of the things that I found helpful when I was um, on maternity leave, because I had no idea. I couldn't imagine what life would be like with a baby (laughs) other than things would be different. Yeah. uh, Obviously, no (laughs) real idea about exactly how different. Um, And it did help to kind of... um, are, I'm not saying it's perfect, but no one's going to look at that PhD thesis and go, "Well, it doesn't really count." It was written by a woman yeah, yeah, who yeah, was you know yeah. was It You know, there's there are we ha- we have some degree of flexibility in, in the work required of us as academics. It does not mean you have a little bit more kind of time to you know, play around, with there aren't sort of things you've got... You know, if you're working, then you've got to be doing Yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I,
1: there's no way I could have, have been working if I had a job where I had to be there. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I did see people in the US, actually, where they do only have their six weeks um, or eight weeks if you had a C-section, as I did. And and I, I have actually no idea how you get yourself out of bed and get to work in a particular place, pumping milk all day if you want to breastfeed or whatever. Yeah. I, I couldn't have done that. Nice. Um, so, yes, the I, in a way... For me, it was an ideal situation because, in all honesty, I'm not the sort of person that is very good at playing games with babies all day. So for me, having that kind of balance of, right, I'm doing my own thing, and I'm quite good at saying, like, now I'm writing, yeah, okay, and now I'm with my child, I'm quite, you know, I find making that difference, um, I prefer it to be that way than to try and do everything at once. And I know other people are different. I see amazing people who are able to be like you know, kind of writing and chatting with their kids and, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, that's, I'm not personally, I have to do one thing at a time.
0: And I think it really, it really helps to let yourself have the flexibility to find out what it's like for you because people are very different. And it's, you don't beat yourself up over how you think it should (laughs) be, you know? It's, I... I found I I I always used to have a real structure to writing when I, before I had a child. Like I I planned the day and I'd come, you know, my afternoon be spent writing and then mm. I'd write as long as I needed to. I can think of one paper where I just had to get a paper finished and I was working every night till you know yeah. eleven o'clock just to get it done fine, great, gone, done. And that can't, that's it, can't do that anymore. Yeah, that's, that's gone. gone. That's, that's gone. just gone. And, and yeah. you have to be able to say, no, you've got 20 minutes, now do some writing. And that was that. took a while to learn that was doable. You just,
1: it takes a while to do it. I think for me the hardest thing was before I had children, um, I would always get up, have a coffee and start working straight away. And it might only be I'd work f- for half an hour, but I would do it straight away and then I'd go off and have breakfast and do things. And of mm. course that's gone when you have when you have kids um, and yeah I think it, to, it does take a while to adapt and everyone's got their own pattern haven't they yeah. and your pattern changes um, but lots of things can change you know it's not yeah. just having children lots of things in life change um, you know you can be doing lots of different things you can be ill you can be yeah. looking after parents you, you, you know your partner might have a job that suddenly means you have to move to a different country you yeah. know there's so many things in life that, that can change these patterns
0: I looked at um, uh, my publication rate. It wasn't bad for the year I was on maternity leave. It was two years after that it suddenly yeah. tanked because that was new stuff hadn't been starting and the, yeah. there was a noticeable gap. But I plotted out my partner's... Um, Publication rate, and he had a dip the year before because the year before I got pregnant, I had a bad accident and been quite incapacitated, right. and he'd had to spend a lot of time like ferrying me around to doctors and things, and just he he'd really blown a hole in about six months of the of the year for me. God, I wasn't too badly off because I could still work, but it was he really hurt mm. his time, and you could see you see that mm. in his publication profile. So absolutely, it by no means is the issues around childcare and looking after babies the only thing that can really start to blow a hole in a academic yeah. CV. Yeah. I think one
1: of the, you know, slightly off topic for me but just one of the things that I think is is very very difficult about early careers now is that there's just no leeway for for that kind of oh this is this was a slow year this was yeah. a, that's just the the job market is so extreme now. I mean so okay maternity mm-hmm. leave can go on a CV in principle how much people really are taking that into account isn't always clear. But, you know, but it's not just maternity leave, is it? It's it's, like you say, it might be a year later that actually things catch up on you or your child might be sick or your partner might be sick. And I think we've just got to a place where we're not allowing those life... We're not allowing that those life things will be there for people, certainly at the early career stage.
0: Absolutely. I I met someone when I was um, on a welcome fellowship who was on the same scheme as me, and he worked in... um, Technology, and there'd been an accident in the lab and he'd lost two years worth of work gone had to start all over again because it was physical mm, stuff that got destroyed yeah. in the flood and and he was saying there's no there's no sort of history or context around right. an academic cv it's a terribly sparse thing and if there's a gap there's a gap mm. and you can put it yeah, yeah it's like the second thing on my cv is when i took the maternity yeah, yeah. leave but if people don't choose to read that no. then you know you can't make. that's them. right <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but 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 I think it's also let yourself be flexible, and it's certainly it can be more manageable than you know there are being a working parent is hard. There yes, are, you know there are being a working carer is hard. I, so there to, are to,
1: let's be you know I think sometimes in academia we get very hung up on on all the difficulties we have, and for sure we do. But we have something so much easier, right? And that is, as you say, not having to be in a physical place mm. between physical hours. Um, I don't think you can underestimate how much how much of a boon that is as a
0: parent absolutely and, and like i say no one yeah. looks at a paper and goes well this doesn't count yeah it was yeah, by yeah. A woman who was doing it and so else, yeah doing. when you're
1: looking back over six years you know it all in a in a way it all comes out over the wash in the yeah. wash right you know
0: and uh, the, the stuff around the cds that's for us to deal with as a community yeah quite than that's that's no individual's problem no fault. absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah so what well, with You've done your PhD in Rochester and you've had a baby. What hmm. was the next move for you? Because that's quite yeah. a lot
1: going on. <laughs> <laughs> we we knew we wanted to move back to the UK. Um, to put this in some context, this was the Bush years. So he just got his second presidency. Um, and I think we also had a sort of sense of, of nostalgia and homesickness. And we you know, we kind of felt if we didn't go then, you know, you we, yeah. yeah. Um, so I originally applied for a postdoc um with Kate Nation which I didn't get someone else got the postdoc um but Kate wrote to me afterwards and said um, you know would you like to apply for a fellowship to try and come here anyway so that was that was in Oxford where I still live and um yeah and I did and and uh, they sadly scrapped the scheme Uh, that was the ESRC one-year postdocs I know they They were were so so they were so important and I mean for me that was so I had that and we all relocated back to Oxford my husband got a job in Oxford and sort of on the basis of that I then applied for more funding and I was very lucky I got British Academy Fellowship and then that was kind of me I ended up being in Oxford with another period of maternity leave and some part-time I ended up being there six years off of that initial one year's worth of, of funding
0: I've seen uh, several people in my lab have had them and they well used to have them when it yeah. still existed as a scheme and they were fantastic things it was exactly what you yeah. need that's yeah. where we should be spending a lot more money at people coming out
1: just when you need it
0: exactly so you they, need a bit of space they are supposed
1: money. to be bringing them back or maybe they even have but they've got this very odd stipulation where you can't apply for them until you've got a phd and until it's like about six months after you've got a PhD so, you're so if you haven't that, got yeah. and, and you've only got a year that you can do it so it's only for people who've I don't know got a, maybe a partner who can support them or parents yeah. who can support them otherwise they're just impractical whereas for me I applied for that while I was still in the States yeah. um and then I came back and I had that um, and yeah and it, basically I used that year to write stuff up and to apply for more funding yeah. um which, so which worked, yeah.
0: Well, hopefully there'll be some <laughs> appearance of this reappearance. Of this is a workable scheme at some point in the future. Yeah. but they were great. They were that, really good. And it did exactly what it said on the tin for yeah. you. That was yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. It did.
1: It did. It worked out.
0: And what was the sort of next stage? So uh, no, let me just quickly. Yeah. Where was your work going in this? Time? Yeah.
1: So. Yeah. Really, I ended up. I I tried lots of different things in my PhD, which you could you could do in the States with having the five years. But where I ended up. Um, really was right back with the questions that first got me interested actually it was kind of the learnability questions um so I don't know how much to go into but I guess the the you know the question um sort of deep long-standing question in, in language acquisition is this sort of idea of how do you uh, infer this grammar on the basis of, of the input you get exposed to um, and the um the learnability problem is that you know you 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 just don't get enough information to tell you what the right grammar is. So you, we know people generalise. We all generalise all the time. So um, you can see this experimentally. If you teach people a new verb, they'll put it in a new structure. Um, you can see it for new words come into the language. So um, I always like to horrify my students by saying, you know, Facebook wasn't always a verb. You know, there was, there was a time when none of us knew that word. But as soon as it became a noun, it became a verb. And then yeah. people started saying things like, oh, I'll Facebook you that later right? Um, and that's because we are creative with language, that's, that's how it works. And certainly as kids learn language, that's what they do. Um, but one of the, the sort of things that, that's, that creates this sort of learning, or how on earth does this work, is that despite the fact that you can generalize, you get these odd gaps in language where something seems like it should be grammatical and isn't. So, mm-hmm. for example, verbs sometimes don't go in structures where you think they were. So you, you can say, throw me the ball, but you can't say, carry me the ball yeah right or uh really odd you know he, he gave the library a book we can't donate the library a book so these this is a sort of example of um, a question that's considered a deep learning question and the sort of logical problem is how do you know that 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 these things aren't just sort of accidental gaps you just happen not to have heard them yeah. rather than systematically not in the grammar so it's this learning you know how can you know that that really isn't grammatical um and so that's a sort of deep long standing question which had really I found really fascinating even as an undergraduate. Um and then I started reading more of the sort of statistical learning literature and some of the connectionist type literature and thinking about this more probabilistically and I suppose the sort of insight, not you know, not originating with me but that sort of informed my work is you know, once you get away from the idea of thinking you've got this grammar and you absolutely know what is and isn't grammatical and you think about it more as probabilistic inference, so you, mm. you can't know you're never going to hear, he carried me that. But you end up knowing a lot about carry and how it, the structures it does go in, um, and that kind of allows you to sort of make an inference like, oh, actually, I'm not talking about conscious inference, but the yep. system kind of figures out, OK, really there really doesn't go in that structure. And so what I ended up doing in my thesis was uh, an artificial language study initially with adults where I kind of taught them a new language that had verbs and structures, that, and some did occur in some structures and some didn't, and I looked at how things like verb frequency um, and other statistical factors of the language influenced generalisation, and also I looked at processing, so were you like predicting what structure you were hearing, and that's how Mike Tannenhaus kind of became involved in the project. Mm-hmm. So that's where I ended up going. Um, and that's still a massive theme in my work now. I do other things as well, and I do things on reading and, you know, broader things as well with, with people I work with. But that's still actually kind of yeah. core in my interests and what, yeah. I, uh, what I think about.
0: And that was, that was what was kind mm. sort of... you yeah, your fellowships.
1: Yeah, so in my fellowships, um, I was trying to do some of that stuff with kids. It proved to be really, really hard to do. It took me four years to figure out paradigms that would work with kids. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to do that. Um Trying to um, look at other kind of cues that might interact with statistical cues, um, like meaning-based cues, sound-based cues, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, yes, and also some computational work, mostly in, in collaboration with other people. Um, at that time, thinking about it in terms of kind of Bayesian models mm-hmm. um, and thinking about the computational kinds of processes that could underpin this kind of learning. Um, so that's why I did in my fellowships.
0: And you've had a small family at that time, was that...? Mm.
1: So when did I have... I had Katie in... in um, so five years after Henry, so that was in... Just at the end, actually, my, it was my British Academy fellowship was ending um, and I would have been out of a job, but actually <laughs> I was able to take a year's maternity leave and then come back very part-time and stretch out <laughs> okay. enough time to get my first faculty job. So oh, actually, I, I you know, I really benefited from that. That was um, yeah so that yeah and I was I was also geographically constrained so um I was working I was living in Oxford um it wasn't possible at that time for us to move um for family reasons but I was lucky because Oxford is quite commutable to a lot of places that yeah. happen to do what we do so Warwick, Reading, um, War Holloway, I was applying to all these places yeah. um, and I ended up getting a, my first um, like lectureship in in Warwick
0: Oh right! Yeah. So you're commuting. I suppose I think of that as being oh, that's the Midlands, but it's not that far. No, from it's Oxford,
1: actually so. easier from Oxford than here is from Oxford. Actually. Yeah. So yeah, it's about an hour and a half in the car.
0: And how was that?
1: Um, the commute. <laughs> well, the so, yeah.
0: you, you, you um, well there's a there's job. a sh- yeah. there's
1: a shock when you get a first faculty job about the reality of kind of balancing teaching and and research and and all those things. And I definitely had difficult moments in there with that um but I also had some very good experiences um I made some I've met some great people um and I you know I was I I they supported me well in terms of helping me get grants and you know all that kind of thing so yeah,
0: yeah. it can be a really it, I I say this as someone who didn't who went into a faculty position sort of by coming off a fellowship so I was in yeah. this position, but the. I do tell people if you're going for your first lectureship, really pay attention to the department because it can make a huge difference mm. as a new lecturer. How much, how well places treat someone yeah, who's, yeah, you know, fresh into this. Yeah,
1: I think there were good and bad. I think there were places where I could have got more support, um, but you know, when I when I hear stories of what some other people go through, I mean, my load was very very light. Yeah. Um, so in 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 the context of, of of other places, and I was definitely given. I was given the time to do my research, yeah. um, and I, and and that is so important. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't had that support yeah. in that time.
0: Did you apply for grants while you were there to carry on supporting your work? Or? Yes,
1: I did. So I had, I'd got an ESRC grant when I was at Oxford, um, and I took that with me, and then I applied for more funding when I was at Warwick. Um, one is co in collaboration with people at Edinburgh, mm. Kenny Smith at Edinburgh, who's a sort of long-term collaborator now, and then my own funding mm. uh, with myself as PI, um, and working with Helen Brown um, at Warwick. Um, and that work's gone slightly... That went more in the direction of um, trying to look at some of the... Actually doing some of the types of experiments we would I was doing with children and adults, one of the things I was I was thinking about was actually how hard children find some of these language learning tasks so there's, there's a bit of a you know we think of children as sort of soaking up language in the environment Um I think that's actually not particularly good analogy yeah. um, and I certainly think when in an if you see in an experimental context you know, children find um, find it very very difficult actually to, to take in language very fast so older learners generally outperform children in those sorts of contexts so I, I kind of came into it thinking about learnability questions that kind of came from first language learning, but I was then also starting to think about, you know, teaching second languages in the classroom and what yeah. kind of materials would work for children. So looking at things like, you know, for adults, it really helps if the talkers keep changing because then you can kind of... Um, th- there's evidence that that can help you kind of remember the words better. Yeah. Actually, for children, turns out that might not be the case because they're just struggling so much with attending to the different speakers... That that can hinder them
0: yeah.
1: um, in actually what you wanted them to sort of focus on in the task. So that's that's where that work kind of
0: went. That's that's really interesting. If you look at the um, if you look at the speech and noise literature, adults struggle most with speech against like a background mm. noise, like a fan mm. or something, um, and they can cope relatively well with background talkers. Mm. They can. Uh, children, it's the other way around. Ch- children really struggle mm. with. Ignoring other speech, it seems yeah. to be a speech perception mechanism. Interesting. They yeah. they are part of being an adult listener is being able to tune into and get rid of speech that is definitely not your target stuff. It mm-hmm. gets in, but it doesn't disrupt mm-hmm. you in the same way. And children are kind of flawed by it. Yeah. Most flawed by adults. So there you go. That's
1: interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should have that's such an interesting idea. Actually, I've never thought about. But we we always the stimuli are always other adults, right? Listen. Yeah. It, yeah. When when you think about naturalistic learning a lot of children's input must be from each other
0: yeah there's certainly there's certainly they do seem to process it mm. well, differently. that's interesting thanks yeah. for the <laughs> tip
1: so, um, um I think it's about four years I've slightly lost track but yes I think about it in terms of how old my kids were when I yeah. went in and out so yeah I think yeah. I think um I went when I went Katie was one and I think she was about five when I left
0: and what um made you move on from there or you just always interested um
1: I in terms of teaching I was in a psychology department there and one of the things I found quite frustrating um was you know I love language as you've probably picked so I, I you know I have all these ideas and thoughts and I and I felt that a lot of the students who were coming in for a straight psychology degree um you know, I mean, this isn't just Warwick, this is very, very common. I've spoken yeah. to lots of people. Language is not generally what they think of when they come in for a degree. And if they yeah. do, they think of it more in terms of, you know, how inf- language might influence people to do X, Y and Z rather than cognitive models. Yeah. So um, I, I sort of, in some ways, felt not exactly out of place, but I felt like, you know, when I was at Rochester, I was in a cognitive science department at Oxford it was experimental psychology and there were also some students who were beginning to be joint with linguistics so yeah. I, there were more people that were coming in with that interest, so here the big pull was um, it's a division of, of psychology and language sciences and the degree I teach on they've all kind of chosen to do a degree which yeah. is a combination, they know from the outset of psychology and language yeah. so um, that was a, a big pull
0: and how was the move? How was the process?
1: Well, I didn't move house. No. So um, it's a longer commute, so that's harder. Um, but, I, you know, again, I've got great colleagues here. Um, I've been very well supported, mm. um, certainly in terms of, of, again, applying for funding. And um, I mean, the, the big thing for me as well, I found it out, may, maybe it's just coincidence of what happens when, but I was, had about three PhD students who I thought I was going to get and then they ended up going somewhere else. Yeah. And here I've been able to have some great PhD students um and and you know that that's made a massive difference
0: Um, and if it's not a stupid question (laughs) do you have advice because commuting is not easy commuting is an extra sort of level of stuff to deal with in addition to working in addition to having yeah I
1: guess I've just I've done it for a long time um and we have considered relocating to London now but for various reasons schools and things like that we're staying where we are for now um I couldn't do it now for my life now I I couldn't do it without having a nanny yeah. I know that's not an option for everybody and I know other people that make it work by kind of um, you know taking it in turns to be the day they work at home and that kind of thing but unfortunately at the moment my husband has not got any flexibility yeah so for me right now I, I have to have a nanny um other advice advice i don't know yeah that's a good okay so i do i so my i try and work on the hour journey um i think the the other thing though is to sort of be kind to yourself so i do try and work on that out so there's an hour train journey from london the whole commute takes about two hours i don't do it every day by the way i stay over in london sometimes that's the other thing um but I think, for example, in the morning I always try and work, but, you know, like I'm going to leave here in 15 minutes and I'm yeah. going to go sit on the train and I'm really tired. Yeah. So it's, I'm not going to make myself try and write a paper. I um, might read some papers or, you know, to be completely honest, I might look at what the hell our government's doing on Twitter and the BBC yeah. for 45 minutes, you know. So I think yeah. I think there is a, a sense in which you some you feel like, well, I've got to use every minute, Um and sometimes you have to think, no, actually, I need a break you've right now. You've got
0: to give yourself a break. I yeah. think there's no. Um, I think the only thing that I've learned with getting older is that it really, the, you know, life isn't a randomized control trial, and you should allow. You know, don't assume yeah. somehow that somehow there'll be some wondrous resort, rewards if you've done nothing but work the whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got, and it is, it, there's so many other demands on your time. You have to build something in where you let yourself whatever it is that works for you. I find, I don't know, Do you, I find space. it
1: easier to be kinder to myself as I get older, actually. I definitely. think ma- maybe that's partly, um, my health isn't quite as, as sort of just free as it was when I was younger. I have to exercise or I, you yeah. know, I, there was some things, but just giving yourself a little bit of a break and, um, mm. and not being so angry with yourself for not achieving what
0: you, I think that does get one sort of the good things about, uh, no, I think it's true. And, and so I definitely build space into my day, uh, into my life like i i'm not working now i'm just, I'm going to do something i want to do which is hang out with my son or yeah, you know exactly. make time to do stuff as a family or i will make time to exercise i will just because these are all things that will make i will feel better as a result yeah. and that uh that's that's got to be part of the day <laughs> it can't all just be absolutely yeah grindstone yeah
1: and kids can be good for making i think that maybe that part of the shift maybe it would happen anyway when you got older but part of the shift is realizing of, oh, you know Things don't totally. The world doesn't fall apart because I no longer work all weekends. You know, yes, it's all
0: right. And even just, um, I can remember when my son was very small, and there was someone in the U.S. Thank goodness it was before the days of social media. But there was someone in the U.S. who was in a f- every so often would send me quite offensive emails, and he was right over on the um, on the West Coast. So I'd get them first thing in the oh morning. Oh God! Um, and I can remember, he just gone on a spate of them. And he, when Hector was very small, um, I was checking my email and this horrible email and I was like looking at Hector I don't don't like feeling like this around a baby I don't like this and then another horrible email came in because I'd replied to him and I thought I can just delete this (laughs) (laughs) I I can just click delete I don't have to read it and I can go and hang out with my baby. Let's do that. <laughs> you know, there's no law that says you have to right. engage with this horrible man. And uh, it was one of the happiest moments of my entire <laughs> life. And, uh, and I don't think... I probably wouldn't have got there if it hadn't been for, you know, for the, for the baby. For the looking, having the baby you know, there, looking you I'm going... not feeling like yeah. that. Not liking feeling yeah. angry around him. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was good. So... um what what do you find works for you in a general sense? Do you have any other things that you'd like to... So, so you know, kind of giving yourself some space, taking, you know... You, you can organise life up to certain points, but some other things are kind of built in, so it's not always possible to move to where your mm-hmm. work is. What, how How do you make this work for you?
1: I do think you have to be very self-motivated and organized and I think if you're I mean but I think most of us are I I find actually I have to say I find it very very difficult to give advice so you know sometimes we do these early career things for people and everyone talks about or how do you write how do you do this and I I do have things I do I think it's very very personal what works for you so for example for me so I know some people who absolutely swear by I set a timer and I write for a certain amount of time yeah I cannot do that so I I, you know I sort of write while the thoughts are coming and then when they stop coming I go and get a cup of tea or coffee or something Mm. and or I move on to a different task so I I do find it very difficult I think I think the one thing is that you you can't you have to be your own sort of self-motivator for the bits, certainly for the bits of the job that we most like and want to do a lot of the time. So yeah. sometimes the admin stuff is just there and, and you're, someone else will tell you off if you don't do it. But the stuff that we want to do, sometimes it's hard to make yourself get started on mm. something, all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, endless lists and being very organised is, is, for me, the only, <laughs> only way I can survive in, in, in this game.
0: And um, are there any particular aspects about UCL's approach to what sort of flexibility in the workplace that you found useful?
1: I, I think, the f- yeah, so I think that's a really good point. So actually, and thinking about where I've been before, and, you know, I, I think one thing that made a massive difference to me, actually, was when I was um, in the sort of negotiation stage that you go through when you get a job and talking mm. about things, and I, I remember saying to you, it was David chanks at the time, or, you know, I, I will... You know, I like to be upfront about those things. So there will be, you know, a couple of days a week where I, I will probably work at home and he his he was just like, Well of course. Like who wouldn't? <laughs> you know you know, and it was just utterly assumed and I don't that for me made me feel not like an outsider. I yeah. think that's a massive thing. Um and I hope we keep that, you know, yeah. long live that because it that's what means, you know, whatever you are, what is going on in your life, um you've got, a bit of
0: you've got yeah. There's a bit of give in the system yeah and so there. you
1: were asking me before about commuting if I had to be in every day I couldn't do it I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd have to do something different yeah um and that is what has made it possible for me yeah. I guess to be an academic actually if I think about it like that yeah.
0: yeah fantastic well is there anything else that you'd like to add
1: not that I can think
0: because of it's a very sunny day I know um, I know it's rather nice to be going home to not London. Yes. <laughs> Not yes. Day, so. Yeah, no, well, actually,
1: last night was a night. I wasn't home as well, so I'm very much looking forward to going
0: for the night now. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Smith.